0: All right, we are back. We've not heard from our old pal Will Durst for a while, so let's correct that deficiency. Hey, guys. Will
1: Durst here with a few choice words about the liberal exodus off the presidential bandwagon, which is approaching on fire drill evacuation levels. <sighs> Even inside his own party, there seems to be a few questions about Obama's leadership skills, which, according to some, is similar to saying Paula Dean Apollo Theater bookings. It splits up into three camps. The side of the party that's a little to the left of Fidel, who will never be happy until he twitches his nose in world peace and, at end, the planetary hunger both break out simultaneously. The centrists, who don't understand why everyone is so mad at the president, after all, he hasn't done anything... And Joe Biden. But really, it's not Obama's fault. Progressives initially hailed him as one of their own because, well, compared to George W. Bush, Cardinal Richelieu would have seemed progressive. But in truth, Barack was always a middle-of-the-road kind of a guy. A facilitator who brought people together. Of course, the only way to bring the squabbling children inside of today's beltway together is through the use of a wind tunnel, fire hose, and 55-gallon drum of industrial-strength glue. You don't send a constitutional lawyer into the Wrangler National Rodeo Finals and expect them to come out wearing the champion bull rider trophy buckle. But after dithering on Syria and the disastrous Obamacare website rollout, Democrats are falling off his presidential bus faster than milk sours in Mexico. Fall off? Jumping off. Like Maui sunbathers at a stop sign next to a complimentary sand-out-of-your-butt spatula stand. But you can never count this guy out. No matter what you think of Obama's policies, you got to admire his ability not to get involved in them. He himself would tell you he's the opposite of a superhero a zero hero. Who else could make Joe Biden look presidential? And who knows, maybe that's the plan. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. You know, and if
0: President Obama wasn't disappointing enough, let's add this to the mix. Apparently the White House this last week rejected an appeal for clemency from National Security Agency leaker Edward Snowden. A former NSA contractor who's been granted asylum in Russia, at least until July 2014, published an open letter to American officials last week in Der Spiegel, arguing that his leaks about far-reaching NSA spying had provoked a positive debate in the U.S. Speaking the truth is not a crime, he wrote. White House advisor Dan Pfeiffer said that clemency was not an option and that Snowden should return to the U.S. and face justice. Senate Intelligence Committee Chairwoman Dianne Feinstein agreed, saying that if Stone were a true whistleblower, he would have reported privately to her committee first. <laughs> right. That didn't happen, she said. And now he's done this enormous disservice to our country. Well, this correspondent has just finished James Bamford's book, The Shadow Factory. And I would say that if you want to have just the crap scared out of you, that's a pretty good read. James Bamford is someone we've been meaning to bring on this program for, I think, running on to five years now when we have to correct that deficiency. It's an amazing book, and uh, even though it was written several years back, it's as fresh as today's headlines about uh, Edward Snowden. It's, uh, it's pretty scary stuff, and I, I don't even want to go there today. Now, we've been hoping to bring you an update about Comet Ison, a candidate supposedly for being the comet of the century, but uh, so far, Ison kind of like the San Francisco 49ers, is continuing to disappoint. Apparently, while the uh, Green Bay Packers are playing the Detroit Lions on Thanksgiving, it should make its closest pass to the sun and and should brighten up considerably in conjunction with that near-death experience. But all I can say right now is don't make any book on this being the, quote, comet of the century, unquote. We can't count it out yet, but it's just not looking good. I also meant to get to a letter uh, about things astronomic sent to us a couple weeks back by Rollo, who said, we're supposed to have a hybrid solar eclipse. I have no idea what that is and thought you might be able to explain it. Well, in fact, I can. Now, if I explain it so well that you can understand it, we'll accomplish something. (laughs) We're always hindered a bit in this by the fact that we're on radio and have no pictures. But we talked about an annular eclipse, uh, one that took place in Reading. That was on uh, May 19th of 2012. We traveled up to see the moon almost cover the sun up. The reason that was an annular and not a total eclipse was that, well, the moon was just a little bit too far away. During its orbit, it gets closer and further from us, and if the eclipse takes place when it's further, sometimes it doesn't quite cover up the sun. In the case of this hybrid eclipse, when the eclipse started... The tip of the moon's shadow, that great triangle in space, was just not quite making it to the Earth's surface. If you can imagine the Earth viewed from the sun, you're looking at it like, like a globe standing in front of you. The darkness, the eclipse path, will move from left to right all across the front of the Earth's surface. Hope you can visualize this. But when it hits on the left, it's daybreak somewhere. When it leaves the Earth on the right, it's sunset somewhere. Now It turns out in the case of the hybrid eclipse we had on November 3rd, the Earth radius makes enough difference to get someone on the Earth's surface closer to the Moon by 4,000 miles to where then the Moon does cover up the Sun's surface. As that point of shadow keeps moving and regresses a bit away, then as the eclipse ends, the Moon still doesn't cover up the Sun. So that's why it's a hybrid. It starts out as an annular, becomes a total, goes back to being an annular. Is that clear, Mr. McMillan? Fair enough. So be it. We've got about two or three minutes left. Let's, let's, let's end on some lighter fare. Like this letter to the editors of New Scientist magazine. Someone wrote to ask, Why is the smell of pencil shavings so distinctive? I really like it, especially when they heat up as the sun comes through my classroom window. Responding was David Muir from the science department of Portobello High School in Edinburgh. Said Mr. Muir, an important property of a good quality pencil is that it doesn't splinter when sharpened. Red cedar wood has this property and was the wood of choice for pencil manufacture during the 19th and early 20th centuries. Dwindling supplies of this tree forced manufacturers to turn to incense cedar in the 1940s, and that is what many pencils are still made of today. Incense cedar has an excellent sharpenability, and and as the name suggests, has a wonderful aroma. He goes on to note that cedar trees have evolved to produce a cocktail of chemical compounds that include cedrol and cedrine. This concoction can act as a protectant against pests, bacteria, and fungi. In fact, this correspondent has two cedar chests, in which clothing can be stored without fear of getting eaten by moths. Mr. Muir notes that when a pencil is sharpened, this mix is released from the wood. And the sun's heat increases the evaporation of the aromatics, enhancing the odor. And now you know the rest of the story. (laughs) And in some good environmental news, it appears that the earthworm has been falsely accused. We do know that a fifth of carbon dioxide emissions come from soils, and it has been thought that earthworms may play a central role in that, given that they churn up soil and encourage the breakdown of organic matter to produce CO2. But apparently, Wei Xinjiang of the South China Botanical Garden in Guangzhou, China, said that things are more complex. His team's work showed that the microbes in the guts of earthworms convert organic carbon into a form that can be stored in soils. He said, We believe the recent estimation of earthworms increasing soil emissions by 3 to 3 percent is likely a severe overestimate. Well, we kind of suspected that earthworms may be getting a bad rap. And a final item, some good news from medicine, we hope. Note a new scientist, it's been a long time coming, but the world's first anti-malaria vaccine should soon be saving lives. Malaria infects more than 200 million people a year and kills at least 500,000, mostly children. New results from the longest and largest trial of a vaccine are in. And if approved by 2015, it could reach clinics a year later. Evidently, GlaxoSmithKline's RTSS vaccine showed some promise in trials with toddlers and babies. At the one-year mark after receiving the vaccine, there were 56% fewer cases of malaria in the toddler group and 31% fewer cases in that of younger babies. It's not a cure, but it may help. That about does it for today's program. Our thanks to Jefferson Morley. He's a great guest and hope we'll be hearing more from him in the future. For the last time, we would direct you to jfkfacts.org. It is a great website. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. For next week's program, we're going to see if we can obtain for you the Dean of Assassination Critics, Mark Lane. And perhaps also an exclusive interview with a mystery guest talking about JFK. We'll see you then.